So my name's Alan, nice to meet you. And we are doing Bible studies every Thursday till the end of summer. And uh, we've been going through the book of Revelation, which is a book that many people avoid, but we're not afraid of what the Word has to say. And uh, we're going specifically, specifically through the seven churches in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is speaking to these seven specific churches that are going through different uh, circumstances. And it's been a great journey thus far, but I think that's led us to take a break today to talk about something that's very, very important. So we're going to be doing more of a talk on what's called apologetics. Apologetics is a fancy word for defending the faith. Uh, we've been touching on a number of issues as we've, we've been exploring these different churches, but there's one particular issue, I think, culturally that we have to deal with if we're ever going to be able to move forward in our walk with Jesus in this cultural moment. So if you'd like, you can turn to the book of Luke chapter 11. I'm just going to open up with one small passage, and uh, then we're going to do the talk, which will mainly not be a Bible study. So this is a deviation, once again, from what we normally do. Normally, we go verse by verse of the Bible. Today is a little bit different, uh, and you'll see why. But our talk is entitled tonight, as you saw on Instagram, A Critical Obstacle to Justice. A Critical Obstacle to Justice. We'll be in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. If you're new to Gradient, we also have uh, Instagram on which you can find all the updates, materials, etc. And want to remind you once more before we get into the Bible study. After time, after after we do this, we're going to have a time of fellowship. But please keep the six foot distance. Please wear your masks for that fellowship because there are a number of people who are immune compromised and they're concerned. And because of that, it's, you never want to put a person in a position where they have to say something and it's just awkward. So just out of our love for everybody else, I know some of you have been quarantined together. Some of you feel more comfortable. But for our sakes, using the space, let's honor each other and show love to each other. And one of the ways we can do that is just abiding by extra couple feet in between people and wearing a mask. So while you're sitting down, though, you're free to not wear one unless you so choose. Okay, Luke chapter 11, verse 14 says about Jesus that he was casting out a demon. By the way, if you're not a Christian, great way to start off a Bible study. Jesus was casting out a demon. Uh, talk to me afterwards. And it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub is another word for Satan, by the way. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus 
in this short little passage is doing a good work, just casting out a demon. I don't think anyone particularly wants to have demons inside of them. And so he casts it out, and the religious leaders question him by asking him, are you really casting out with the power of God, or do you have a different source of power? Is there an evil motive behind this? Are you deceiving us? Perhaps you're in cahoots with the devil himself, and that's how you got these demons to leave. And Jesus, of course, not only answers this question by saying it doesn't make any sense for Satan to be divided against himself. If I have the power of Satan and I take out Satan, what does that say about Satan? No house that's divided against itself will be able to stand. Instead, it just proves that I have the stronger power. And by the way, by whom do your sons cast out demons? And so what you see in our society today is a lot of people are questioning your motives. Why are you doing this? Why are you involved in racial reconciliation? Why are you posting certain things? Why are you donating? Why are you doing these things? And as a Christian, why are you helping people out? Why are you serving the needy and the homeless? Why do you go on mission trips? And they're looking at your motives and they're looking at the source. And we're entering into a world where people are completely dismissing that you might have any genuine uh, motives behind the things that you do because of what their perception is of Christianity as a whole. It's a dangerous world to live in when you're living in that world. But see how Jesus is always so brilliant in the way that he answers people. Because not only does he answer, but he turns the question back on them. What is your source of your power? I don't think a lot of people think about that. They just take whatever narrative is given to them, whatever's popular, and they view the world through that one lens. But they never stop to question, is this lens given to me by someone for a specific purpose? And we do believe that there are spiritual forces in this world. We believe that there is a God who created the world. We don't think that this world just popped into existence by itself, by nothing. Nothing ever happens that way, by the way. You'll never, none of you are afraid that you're going to walk into the parking lot and an elephant's going to pop into existence and land on top of you. No one's afraid of that. And you can't say, well, that's, that's not scientific, but the beginning of the universe is scientific because remember, in order for something to be scientific, it has to be repeatable. Nothing, if, if it's true that the universe popped into existence by itself, out of nothing, it has never once ever been repeated in history, ever. So that's interesting. That's not very scientific, is it? So everyone has a philosophical theory on how the universe began. To me, it sounds like it's more plausible, even though it sounds impossible, more plausible for a mind to create something than for something to create itself. So anyway, we believe in spiritual forces. And because we believe in spiritual forces, we believe in good forces and bad forces. We believe that God is good and he has good intentions, but there is a corrupt world that we live in. And because of that, you have to ask yourself, what do demons do with their time? What does Satan do? Does he just kind of like chill and just wait for the whole world to burn? Or is he actively involved in the world that we see today? Is he actively, well, the Bible tells us the answer, by the way. The Bible says that Satan roars around and prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan is a spatial being, so it's not like he can be omnipresent like God. He's going around the earth, and he specifically has intentions in order to bring groups of people, especially the church, down. So we're seeing today that there's a belief 
in the world, especially in our culture. And my job tonight and your job is to see if we can poke some holes in it and ask ourselves, does it stand up to scripture? Does it stand up to truth? So before we do that, let's pray one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would guide us, lead us, teach us how we can truly move forward in seeing oppressed peoples find true justice. Help us to be an advocate. Help us to um, follow you in your mission for the reconciliation, not just of a race, but of the entire world. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's worth asking the question, is society improving? I mean, if the, the earth has been around as long as it has, whether you're, you believe in an old earth or young earth, doesn't really matter. The fact is the earth has been around for a long time. And if that's the case, why do we still have problems like racism? Why is there still a sex slavery trade? Why, why does pedophilia still exist? Why, why do a lot of these moral issues and societal problems and systemic problems still exist in society today? Haven't we got beyond that? And you see that a lot of people have optimism until you see tragedies like with George Floyd and, and many other things that have been happening in our nation. And a lot of them you see are going on and it seems like nobody's putting a stop to these things. So you would think with evolution, that eventually on a secular worldview, with evolution, eventually we would evolve out of these lesser forms of morality. And today we would develop kind of like a divine consciousness ourselves, that we would be able to adapt and to change and, and to maintain progress. But what you see is sometimes people do improve, societies do improve, but some cultures get worse. And wherever you stand on the race issue, by the way, just think about this. A lot of us may not believe in white privilege. A lot of us may not feel like, well, you know what, some cultures may be advanced more than others, but realize all of us, at the end of the day, we all have an American privilege in which America is in this situation that has a lot more wealth than a lot of countries around the world. And a lot of the way that our system is built means that there are societies that are, are working for pennies to make the clothing that you, that you and I wear. A lot of the resources that we have are made at a fraction of the price because they're outsourced. And I'm not saying this is all evil or all bad. I'm just saying that we need to recognize that all of us are living in a country right now that is doing economically better than many other countries around the world. And so to us, we may feel like society is improving. Things are getting better. There's less poor people in the world while others around the world are still dying of starvation today. It's been said that we have everything within our power right now to save every single person from world hunger. We have everything within our means. If we just cut all of our spending just a little bit, we'd all be able to easily uh, end starvation. But we don't. And why is that? Because there's still greed in the human heart. There's still corruption. And what I aim to prove tonight is it's not just corruption at the top, but what the Bible shows us is we're all fallen, we're all sinners, and we all have a need for forgiveness for the corruption that we perpetuate ourselves in society. But about 10 years ago, there was this notion of postmodernism that started infiltrating the church. And many churches started adopting this worldview of relative truth and, you know, 
you have a worldview, I have a worldview, and who am I to judge your worldview? It could be just as true as mine. And from that, you had the emergent church, and these churches started looking at different belief systems and saying, well, do we really have to believe that the Bible is the inerrant, without error, word of God? Maybe it's a source of truth, but there's many other sources of truth. Rob Bell, in his book, Velvet, Ev Velvet Elvis, has this quote. I remember the first time I was truly in awe of God. I was caught up for the first time in my life in something so massive and loving and transcendent and true, something I was sure could be trusted. I specifically remember thinking the universe was safe in spite of the, all the horrible, tragic things in the world. I remember being overwhelmed by the word true. Underneath it, all life is somehow good. And I was 16 and at a U2 concert. It was the Joshua Tree tour. When they started with the song, Where the Streets Have No Name, I thought I was going to spontaneously combust with joy. This was real. This mattered. Whatever it was, I wanted more. So Rob Bell, finding God in the U2 concert. And apparently to him, that was his spiritual awakening. And Rob Bell in his book, Velvet Elvis, you know, which came out over a decade ago, talked about Christianity, has been traditionally thought of as like you have your doctrines as bricks. Like here is the thing that cannot be moved, the virgin birth. Here's, you know, inerrancy. Here's all these things, the tri triune God. And all these bricks, you know, if one of them kind of slips, like do we really believe in the resurrection? The whole thing crumbles. It's not able to sustain Christianity. And people toss out Christianity because people poke on whether or not resurrection is possible, whether or not miracles are possible or whatever. And they said, what if Christianity was like springs? And you remove one spring of the whole thing, it's, it's a trampoline. The whole, you can still jump on it. It's totally fine. So you, yeah, we don't believe in the virgin birth anymore. Just take out that spring and we can still be Christians. That was the view of postmodernism. And we know that today, not only is postmodernism self-refuting, to believe that all truth is relative is itself not a relative truth, right? But beyond that, Rob Bell and, and Emergent Church Movement and all those guys they eventually stopped believing in God at all because why would they even espouse Christianity in any tenets um, if it's just as good as any other worldview? So we're seeing today in the very same way, a lot of you, this is review, but some of you, this may not be. But the point is today, I think we're seeing something similar to what we saw 10 years ago where every apologist was talking about postmodernism. We're seeing movement towards racial justice that's sweeping the nation, which is amazing, right? Uh, there's lots of change happening in the church. Conversations are happening. And then there's controversial things happening. Some good, some bad. We're seeing, you know, slogans of companies changing and they're changing different ways that they're advertising. Coca-Cola is taking 30 days to fast and pray or their version of it. And you have corporations and statues and all these different things. But the problem is, I see secular voices are leading the change. And this new worldview that's emerging can cause division and departure from biblical faithfulness. So in other words, true justice and the good work that we're trying to do as believers can get hijacked by a worldview that's competing to our own. Listen to what Professor Thaddeus Williams says. What a great name. He says, the problem is not with the quest for justice. The problem is what happens when that quest is undertaken from a framework that is not compatible with the Bible. And this is a very real problem because the extent to which we unwittingly allow unbiblical worldview assumptions to shape our approach to justice 
is the extent to which we are inadvertently hurting the very people we seek to help. So the problem is, if we are adapting to a view of justice that is not successful and anti-biblical, we might find ourselves at the top of the, of the food chain with no justice at all, but something very different. So I'm going to talk about, and maybe you guys have read this, the number two book on Amazon charts right now, Robin D'Angelo's book called White Fragility. So um, CNN did an interview with Robin D'Angelo. She's a very popular author right now. And uh, the CNN article, I'm going to quote it, and maybe you can relate. So just kind of do some self-reflection right now. It says this, if you're a white person in America, social justice educator Robin D'Angelo has a message for you. You are racist, pure and simple, and without a lifetime of conscious effort, you will always be. You just can't help it, you see, because you've been swaddled in the cocoon of white privilege since you came spluttering out of your mother's womb, protesting the indignity of it all. You may be indignantly sputtering right now at this insult to your humanity, for how can you be a racist? You have black colleagues you consider friends, you don't see skin color, you never owned slaves, you, you marched in the 60s, you even protest today against the uniformed bad apples that use the power of their authority to smother minority lives and minority rights. How dare you say any, I am anything like them, you grumble, as you pull, pull the cloak of your bruised and fragile feelings around you. And there, with that simple act, you personify the theme of D'Angelo's best-selling book, White Fragility. So that's kind of how it enters. Maybe you've read an article similar to this or you've seen a post similar to this. And I got to ask you, like, what is your reflection? How do you respond to something like that? Do you know? Um, and maybe your, your response is, well, what can I do about that? What should I do? And there's a lot of good that's happening as a result. I mean, corrupt people are, that are in power are being held accountable. There's conversations happening. People are more conscious about their racial insens insensitivity. But is there some harm in this worldview? To me, it kind of sounds like, it sounds like evangelizing. It sounds like back when Ray Comfort was going up, to, I mean, he still does it, but he goes up street evangelizing and he does it on camera. He walks up to people and says, hello, did you know that you're, um, do you think you're a good person? And they say, oh yeah, I think I'm a good person. And he goes to the Ten Commandments and you're, you're a liar, you're a cheater, you're a thief. And he kind of goes down through every command and, and says at the end, so knowing that you're a liar, you, you know, you've been adulterous, you've done all these things, would God find you innocent or guilty on judgment day? So, well, I guess I'd be guilty. So you run through that whole thing and it's like, oh, I'm guilty. And it's kind of like a, almost like a mind trick in that moment. And I think this is almost like a similar, similar thing. It's like, did you know that you're racist? I am racist? Yes. And let me explain. And here's the whole book to explain why no matter what belief system you've had or your upbringing or anything like that, by virtue of being white, you are therefore a racist. So you hear that and you're like, oh man, that's probably true. Yeah, I, I can identify. I've thought that before. I've done that before. Okay, now what do I do? And here's, here's the problem is you're given a list of endless demands and actions that will never result in us being entirely rid of our sin and racism. I didn't just make that up, by the way. That's a quote. Not that, but I'll quote to you, Robin D'Angelo. She said, I don't think in my lifetime I will be free of my racist conditioning. And I don't actually call myself an anti-racist. That's for people of color to decide if at any given moment I'm actually behaving in anti-racist ways. Also, she says, if we don't interrupt the systems we live in, 
then we're complicit in them. In that way, we can say that nice white people who do nothing to further to challenge racism are racist. That's from an NPR article. So you see, you're left with this kind of very pessimistic view of the world because the fact that you're born white means that you'll always be racist no matter what. I can say this, by the way, because I'm not white. So what do you do with that? Essentially, it leads to penance, doesn't it? you're constantly needing to atone for your sins for the rest of your life. And though there are some truths to what she's saying, I think the worldview overall is unhelpful and perhaps anti-biblical. So how would you respond though? Because you see one of two drastic reactions. Number one, either people deny racism altogether, which is not helpful to anybody. Or number two, some are driven to action for fear of getting this wrong for fear of the mob mentality and the cancel culture. And if I don't say anything, if I don't post anything, I know people, I know some of you have been terrified of how to respond because everybody's evaluating whether or not you're racist by whether or not you had a black square on your Instagram. I do, by the way. But they're looking at your Instagrams. I, I had no idea that's what it was about. I just posted it because I thought it was a good idea. But apparently, like, I'm on one side now. But for you, you are feeling like you're trapped, like no matter what you do, you can't ever do right. So we're gonna talk about what this is. This is something called critical theory. There's a couple different names for it, but the one that I'm gonna address tonight is critical theory. And uh, a lot of this material goes to credit uh, to a guy named Neil Shenvey, who's an apologist that operates out of J.D. Greer's church. Um, so Neil Shenvey has this quote, Definition of critical theory is a broad area of knowledge that originated with the Frankfurt School in the 1930s and has expanded and evolved dramatically since then. It has spawned entire disciplines such as critical race theory, critical pedagogy, and queer theory, and is highly influential within the social justice movement. Contemporary critical theories, uh, theory views reality through the lens of power, dividing people into oppressed groups and oppressor groups along various axes like race, class, gender, sexuality, and physical ability, and age. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, so some of you may know what Marxism is, right? Whereas Karl Marx viewed problems in society as due to an imbalance of economic distribution. So Marx believed that the reason why people were committing crimes was because there was poverty and there's a poor person in his neighborhood not able to provide for his family so he needs to rob you know, the bakery in order to be able to feed. And that's kind of where sin originates and that's the problem. So if you can eliminate um, poverty, then you can eliminate the need for crime. So that was kind of his view. But this is not Marxism. This is critical theory, which views problems not as an imbalance of economic distribution, but views problems in society as a result of an imbalance of power. So, and that power primarily rests in the hands of old white men. And that power is used to shape the dominant ideologies and culture. So, very easy example to, to prove how this works. Um, all of us know the power of mainstream media to shape and influence our ideas. Everybody knows the power of advertising to target your mind and compete for your mind space. So there's something in advertising called top of mind awareness, which is the belief that if we just get our product in front of your eyes enough times, like if Tide is doing enough advertisements on television or YouTube 
and you're always seeing Tide advertisements, when you're thinking, I need to go buy laundry detergent, you think of Tide because that's really the only one that you see and that's the one that's most prominent. So we know there are companies fighting for your mind and we also know that this is true about pretty much every, everything else, right? Whether it's the allure of sexuality and that's put in our advertising or the allure of money, we know that there are ideologies trying to shape our attitudes and shape the culture. But this very shaping by the dominant culture is seen as oppressive itself. So Shenvi again says, traditionally oppression is understood to reflect acts of cruelty, injustice, violence, and coercion. But critical theorists expand this definition to include ways in which the dominant social group imposes its norms, values, and ideas on society to justify its own interests. Iris Young writes, in its new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer, not because the tyrannical power coerces them, but because of the everyday practices of a well-intentioned liberal society. Its causes are embedded in unquestioned norms, habits, and symbols. So that leads to, since the dominant culture is shaping and forming ideologies and the culture that you live in, um, this leads to the separation and the, the creation of two different cultures, two different groups. You have the oppressors and you have the oppressed people. So that's the oppressors. But now what about the oppressed peoples? Well, oppressed groups are defined along the lines of something called intersectionality. I know there's a lot here if you've not been taking college, uh, college courses in this, um, but hopefully any questions that you have, you can just ask me afterwards. But intersectionality seeks to explain how different systems of oppression intersect to further oppress specific groups more than others. Okay, so I'll say that again because that's kind of a big thing. It seeks to explain how different systems of oppression intersect to further oppress specific groups more than others. So in other words, we know that there is systemic racism and systemic oppression of certain forms, right? So it's kind of like, think about how those systems that target specific individuals may intersect and make people doubly or multiples of oppressed peoples. So it's one thing to be oppressed as a black person, but what about a gay black person? Or not just as uh, a teen, but as a single teen mother. So you have these different forms of oppression that are all intersecting and placing a person at the bottom of the totem pole, as it were. So that means the oppressed experience of the individual, according to critical theory, is something non-oppressed peoples cannot understand or relate to. You don't know what it's like to be an oppressed black gay person, unless you are a black gay person. Um, you don't know what it's like to be a single teen mom, unless you are a single teen mom. So you don't know their experience. And so when you're coming out with your data and your facts and statistics, you are undermining the fact that this person is a minority and they don't have a voice as loud as yours. And when you're speaking, it only proves that you want to hold on to your power. You want to hold on to your position. So you've heard the response that maybe you can't understand because you're white. And if you were black, you would be able to understand, but you shouldn't speak to this issue because you don't have my upbringing and my culture. It's similar to the way that people look at men who are pro-life and say, well, this is men trying to control women and control women's bodies. That's why they're pro-life. And the women that are pro-life, 
they're only finding themselves to be in the uh, suppressed oppression of the white man who's there to dominate them. So this is all about oppression. It's all about maintaining power. Now, something shocking, maybe you didn't know. I didn't know until I saw an article about it um, a couple of weeks ago. 1985, there was a bombing in Philadelphia. Maybe you didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. And the bombing in Philadelphia was conducted by the police department in Philadelphia and commissioned by the mayor of Philadelphia. In fact, 11 people died of this black group called MOVE, including five children and 61 homes were lost. Many others were burned. I didn't know about that. And that's tragic and it's terrible. Now here's the thing. The mayor of that uh, city at the time was black. And so according to critical theory, what you would see then is you'd see on one side, you know, maybe more conservative right-leaning people would say, oh, it's not a racist attack because there's a black person in office. But you see, with critical theory, they're able to see it as a racist attack because that black mayor was just a pawn under the oppression of the white power. And that's how they would view it. This is why they have the statement that all cops are bad. Because on the right side, a lot of people, what they would argue is, hey, let's make this video go viral. Here's a nice police officer doing some great things for the community. Here's a black police officer. And they kind of just show all these nice things and try to make them go viral. But the argument on their side for the critical theorists isn't necessarily that there aren't morally good police officers that are virtuous. It's more so that the very fact that they are in a position of power over somebody else makes them a bad person. All power in all forms is bad because it always has the opportunity to abuse it and oppress people. That's their view. The very fact that a police officer has a gun and can at any point in time take your life and you have no ability to fight back would make them bad. Not saying that's my view. I'm saying this is according to critical theory. But this helps to shed light. Hopefully this helps you to understand a little bit of where they're coming from. Now, these groups, these oppressed groups, find solidarity in their common oppression and common enemy. They're all oppressed by old white men. And so they find themselves rallying together to fight the old white men. This is why Black Lives Matter as a movement isn't just about black lives. It's about black trans lives. And it's a feminist movement. And, and you'll see in their, not, I don't know what they call it, statement of faith, but the secular one. You know what I'm saying. Go on their website. And it's all about those other things as well. Because, because maybe you got confused. I'm like, like, what does that have to do with the whole black? I thought this was about George Floyd and, and we're adding these other things to it too. And that's because they're all oppressed groups. And it makes sense now. They're finding solidarity in their oppression and they see it as them fighting together. Now, I'm not trying to make a knock here, but I'm just pointing it out. This is how it works. So it's okay for, to, do, to, to do a Black Lives Matter rally and to do a march where you have um, a, a trans person do the trans flag and, and, or the gay rights flag and you have that kind of brandish and you go around with a sign, but not okay to do that with the Blue Lives Matter along with uh, Black Lives Matter. Why? Because one is a position of power and one is not. So that's why it makes sense. So morality is less about virtues like kindness, patience, generosity. Morality now on the critical theory side is primarily with social activism. And the end goal for them is the, the liberation of oppressed groups and the power reversal. 
So now you're a good person, whether or not uh, you're, you're a good person to the degree that you choose to join the fight, post, vote, sign the petition, do what you can to eradicate um, the white power that is currently here. So now, hopefully you, you, you got all that. If you now think about this, according to what the Bible teaches us, think about comparing critical theory to the gospel. Sin is replaced with oppression. Salvation is replaced with becoming woke and good works are replaced with activism. Interesting. It almost becomes like a false gospel in many ways because you're continually needing to atone for the sins that you are committing intentionally or unintentionally. And for you to be able to see what's really going on is, is the wokeness that is almost uh, likened to a salvation experience. And when you are doing good works, it's based on whether or not you are entering into the fight for justice. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up as a believer, and if you're not a Christian, this is really important to get. I really believe that if you see what critical theory is for itself, you'll see that the end result will never be justice. There'll always be fighting. There'll never be redemption. Instead, the gospel gives a better answer. There will be times that we align. There are times that we agree with critical theory, but there are also times that we completely diverge. Number one, I'm going to give you the gospel truth now. Number one, there is oppression in this world. Let's agree on that, okay? Yes, there are evil people. There are corrupt people in power abusing it. There are a lot of injustices in this world. There are racists in this world, and there is systemic racism in this world. And hear what the Bible says about that. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Psalm 72, verse 4. God will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and he will break in pieces the oppressor. So we see there is oppression in this world. That is true. But this is very important. Not all power is bad. The fact that people have power itself does not mean that it's a bad thing. I'll prove it to you. It is good that I have power over my children. I, I would not want to liberate my children from me, right? There's some structures where that's okay. There's also never in the history of time ever been a successful leaderless movement. Every movement, even the one that we're seeing today, requires a leader. And God himself is the ultimate power and his ideology that he's espousing happens to be objective truth. So it's not all power is bad. It's the abuse of power that is bad. And that's where we can come alongside at times, police officers, because we recognize where they are in their position because of their job doesn't automatically mean that they're a bad person. So we agree oppression in this, there is oppression in this world and we do want to speak out against that, but not all power is bad. But here's the other thing. The Bible shows us, number two, that Christians have solidar solidarity in at least three other ways where people are dividing themselves in two separate groups, oppressor and oppressed, we as Christians know that we're all human beings created in the image of God. That's how we're all linked together initially. 
but we're also linked together in the fact that we are all fallen sinners. We are, we are all united in our rebellion against God and that corruption brings us down and humbles us all because we recognize that we all contribute somewhat, some way to the injustice in the world. Whereas in critical theory, those that are evil are the oppressors. Those that are good are the ones that are oppressed and working towards uh, the power reversal. We recognize that both oppressor and oppressed are all sinners. The Bible says there is none good, no, not one, which means we all need forgiveness, which means though we can sympathize with those that are oppressed, I'm not denying the fact that some people may be more oppressed than others. At the end of the day, there will never be true healing until you are willing to forgive. The way of the world is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's to take justice and matters into your own hands. The way of Jesus is he came down into this world. He gave up his power, became a human being, and then he died on a cross to suffer the ultimate injustice, not for his own sins, but for the sins for you and for me and for the entire world. He did that out of love. And so Christians have a different way to fight the battle of injustice. We can love our enemies. We can pray for those who persecute us and spitefully use us. That is a completely different, different, different and radical way to fight this fight. Because the vision of Jesus is, remember when there was that shooting in that one church a long time ago? And then afterwards, the shooter was being brought to trial and the church came up to them and they forgave, the family forgave that one shooter. No one would ever think of like this being an option. And that's because when God has forgiven us of our sins, we're humbled and we think, if God has forgiven me of such a great debt, who am I to hold the sins of another against, against me? But that requires us to really recognize and really wrestle with the sin that we have committed against each other. That we're not righteous. We all have lied. We've all done things that we're embarrassed to admit. Some things that if we put up on the screen, all of us would be canceled. We all understand what it's just like to have that deep-seated guilt. And yet Jesus says, if you come to me, if you believe on me, that you would have eternal life, that you would be forgiven from all of your sins. God doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't look at you in 10 years and go, well, did you really show that you're sorry? And think in quarantine, it's one of those times that Satan starts fighting at you all the time, right? He starts like throwing in those accusations and saying, you're really not forgiven. You really haven't changed all those different things. He starts stumbling again. But with the forgiveness of Jesus, it doesn't matter how many times even Jesus said to Peter, when Peter asked him, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? And he said, 70 times, seven times. Even non-Christians have heard that proverb before. And the truth is, God is willing to forgive you countless times. And he already has forgiven you if you believed on him. And why not forgive our brother and sister that sins against us? So we recognize that our primary problem in the world is not old white people in power. The problem is sin and the problem is death. And Jesus defeated both. Which means all of us have the true hope that one day Jesus will bring true justice to the world. And it's only a matter of time. And in the meantime, our fight is what John Mark Comer says, is at best a holdover until Jesus finally ushers in his new kingdom. We still engage in this fight. We still do our, our best to fight for the orphan in the window and, and window. <laughs> Lord, 
why can I be born able to speak English? Um, widow. And uh, you know what I'm saying. All my points just died right there. Okay. Lastly, not only are human beings united and they're being created in the image of God as sinners, but they're united in Christ versus being united in oppression. Our differences aren't erased, but they're demoted. Now you're able to see inside the church building different people, right? Of all different walks, cultures, ethnicities, and we're, we're here to celebrate those things, not erase them, not just try to see like one neutral culture, but we're able to see the differences and appreciate those, those differences. But those differences don't define us anymore. And then lastly, 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 um, there's objective truth. Although it's true that different cultures can bring different perspectives it is not true that truth is exclusive to oppressed cultures. So the belief that when you're going through the intersectional view of I am the oppressed of the oppressed of the oppressed, that doesn't mean that your special insight is more valid than the objective truth about reality. Everyone has access to truth. Now you may have different perspectives of that truth, but that doesn't mean that you alone have sole access to it and therefore you can dominate the conversation. Should we listen to oppressed peoples before we speak? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we wouldn't be able to understand or comprehend if it's explained to us thoroughly. Otherwise, if you don't believe that, you shouldn't read this book. Do you know why? Because it's written by males and they're not the oppressed group. Instead, we know that God is the source of all truth. We know that he is the source of true reality and he can provide for us the way to move forward. And so when we're speaking the truth and love to other people, we're not primarily looking at statistics and data and polls and all those things or personal experience, but we're first going to what has God said in his word. And then we're able to illustrate it with data and with personal experience. So where does this leave us today? Well, it leaves us to pray, first and foremost. Maybe you're here today, and what I'm saying just like went, went in one ear and went out the other, and you're just like, I have no idea what he said, but I just hope that he doesn't talk about this next week. Don't worry, next week I'm not talking about this. I'm talking, we're going into the, the, the next church in Revelation. But maybe you're here today, and what I've said to you is liberating, no pun intended. You're hearing this like, oh man, thank God, because I was just so worried and so fearful about saying the right thing, doing the right thing, and I felt like I was always doing things wrong. You don't have to feel guilty based on whether or not you, you, you put in your share to, to be awakened to your whiteness or whatever. But you can, you can have confidence based on knowing that Jesus Christ loves you. And the more that you dwell in his love, the more that you can look at the mission field around us and say, all right, great. Now, how can I better minister to the people around me? How can I better minister to the black community or whatever else it is, the gay community? And we're looking at those differences. We're hearing their stories, but we're not looking at it as, as um, a venue for judgment or self-condemnation. We're looking at it as a place to learn so that we can more effectively reach people for Jesus Christ. 
And then lastly, if you still disagree with me, I'd be happy to have any conversations you have uh, on this subject. But I do believe that it was a conversation necessary for this evening, as I think a lot of people, myself included, can be easily swayed by what's popular in culture. But that's why we always have to question and ask ourselves whether or not we're, we're bringing it back to the Word of God, as we've been talking about here on Thursday nights. So, that being said, let's pray.